So I'm always wanting to kind of recontextualize the notion of what is iconic by creating not only this utter kind of seduction of beauty of us entering the work, but then a way for us to recontextualize the way that we actually look at things. I can no longer just make work about community in relationship to ideas of the structure. Mm -hmm. I had to start making work about my friends. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Botten, reference specialist and blog editor here at the Archives of American Art. And I'm Sarah Bohannon, external affairs specialist. Welcome to Articulated. This podcast receives support from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. This episode describes photographs that depict cutting in an SM context. Catherine, or Kathy Opie, is a photographer whose work examines the spaces, places, and symbols that connect us with one another and ourselves. From her emergence in the early 1990s, with portraits of butch lesbian SM culture, to her cityscapes and landscapes, to her inventory of the objects in Elizabeth Taylor's house, Opie's photography engages fundamental questions about the histories and human stories made available through images. In this episode, we will learn about Opie's navigation of queer and feminist visibility from the 1980s to today, as well as her sense of how documentary photography can enrich our understanding of our world and experiences. Opie was born in Sandusky, Ohio in 1961, where she was precocious in her artistic ventures. She talks about her first pull to photography during her 2012 oral history with interviewer Hunter Drovoyoska Filt. Yeah, I asked for a camera for my ninth birthday, and I had uh, written a report about Lewis Hine, and I wasn't a very good student. I didn't understand the world through words, even though I was an avid reader. Even though I completely was obsessed with books and my, my face was always in a book, I really began to, at an early age, begin to kind of look at the world in relationship to, I guess, its ideas of kind of being represented or, or creating representations of it. And so I asked for a camera when I was nine because Lewis Hines' photographs of the children in the uh, South Carolina mills, uh, A, I kind of couldn't believe that kids that young were working in these kind of mills. And even though I could read the words in my textbook, it really was the image that became this profound realization for me of just like what that image did. Lewis Hine was a sociologist and photographer whose documentary work throughout the South and Midwest bolstered support for child labor laws across the country. Opie's ventures in photography expanded as her family relocated to Northern California. In her oral history, she details her immersion in the SM world of San Francisco and how she came to understand the synthesis of her erotic and photographic lives. No, it's appealing to me. I'm playing. Mm -hmm. I've become a pretty good player. Mm -hmm. I'm known as a pretty darn good masochist. <laughs> I had practice of being a masochist. So, And how did that, uh, psychologically and emotionally, did you question it or did you just decide to go along with it? I went along with it, but it felt like, again, like almost an alter personality. 
Like I was able to, I, I've done very good at compartmentalizing myself in my life. Mm -hmm. So it's like when I worked at the YMCA, that was Kathy with the kids. When I worked at the Kenmore Residence Club, that was like the Kenmore Residence Club. And then when I was at school, that was me being the art student. Mm -hmm. So it's like I, I've always been able to navigate multiple situations mm -hmm. at the same time. And there's a little bit of like, oh, I'm just exploring this. Didn't, you know, it was, it was odd. I don't know really how to describe it. It's, I was utterly into it, but at the same time, what was always more important to me was my identity as an artist. Mm -hmm. So I'm playing and I'm doing it and I'm photographing it privately. And I'm photographing for On Our Backs, the lesbian porn magazine, privately mm -hmm. under Kathy Opie, but none of it is Catherine Opie. So it's all Kathy Opie. Well, that's like, like that's such a pseudonym. <laughs> I know. I know, right? So such a pseudonym. <laughs> I know. That's so brilliant funny. of me, isn't it? Um, so you're publishing your the, the, these photographs that you're taking yeah, while like you're playing. lesbian erotica photography. Mm -hmm. and at this point, like I've tried to get a job at Frankel Gallery, but I didn't get a job at Frankel Gallery. But I would go in there all the time early on when I was an art student, and I asked to look at the Maplethorpes. Mm -hmm. So Maplethorpe is like the X portfolio is in my head. The permission to make erotic photographs is there. I just don't want to do that because I don't want to fuck up my chance of being a teacher. <laughs> I want to go on to be a professor. Like, that's my goal. I didn't even think, like, oh, I'll end up showing in museums. I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking, like, well, you do all of this, and hopefully maybe, like, I'll show at a few photo galleries. Like, maybe if I'm really lucky, one day I can show with Jeffrey Frankel. But otherwise, like, I got to keep this a little bit in the down low and in the community because if other people find out, maybe they'll think I'm really fucked up and I'm weird, and then I can't, like, move forward with my life. That's what I'm thinking. Overcoming the fear of reprisal that haunted so many queer photographers at the time, Opie's radical yet formal engagements with erotica also participated in contemporary feminist debates around the limits of sexual liberation and the force of pornography. We spoke with Anne Savetkovich, director of the Pauline Jewett Institute of Women's and Gender Studies at Carleton University in Ottawa, about the historic moment in which these works emerged. I have the pleasure of saying to you a bit about the significance of Kathy Opie's work for me. I'll say, first of all, that I'm not an art historian. I'm a queer studies scholar, but one who's had a strong interest in visual cultures because of the debates, both within feminism and within queer studies about lesbian visibility, as well as representations of sexuality. So I would see Opie's work as coming out of debates within 80s feminisms around the representation of women, of sexuality, the pornography debates, the pro-sex debates. And I see her as part of a trend that includes the embrace of pornography. And she was part of underground sex cultures in San Francisco, that was one site of documentation for her. She did photography for On Our Backs, which was a really important publication. It began in the 80s through the work of people like Susie Bright, who felt that it was possible to make a feminist and uh, lesbian pornography. There were also photographers like Van Golden, whose work I saw, for example, in The Village Voice, doing fashion shoots, who were embracing the 
techniques of fashion photography and celebrity photography for alternative modes of documentation, for documentation of marginalized people, people that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see photographed in those idioms. And the possibility of being able to take up and take over mass culture photography against feminist arguments that that was all sexist and capitalist and to be despised is part of the subversiveness of the work that she and others of her generation have done. Opie was consistently aware of the community captured and constellated in her work. She was a member of activist groups, including ACT UP, which coalesced in response to the AIDS crisis, and which you can learn more about in Season 1, Episode 5 of Articulated. After completing her MFA at the California Institute of Arts, Opie turned to portraiture and her inner circle. The resulting series, Being and Having, offers 13 close-ups of her friends' faces adorned with markers of masculinity, like facial hair and tattoos. These pictures were shown in 1991, only a year after Judith Butler's book, Gender Trouble, began to shift the discourse around gender performance and perception. Obi elaborates on the notions of intimacy and identity that drove the series. That was my first show outside of CalArts, and um, I was still making work about community, and uh, then friends like Mark Maybach Smith, and a lot of friends in San Francisco, and a lot of people in my life were dying. I was part of Queer Nation and ACT UP, and I could no longer just make work about community and relationship to ideas of the structure. Mm-hmm. I had to start making work about my friends. And so I started the portraits. First I did Being and Having, mm-hmm. which is the my friends with fake mustaches on. And uh, that has a very interesting uh, relation. The title has a very interesting implication. To Lacan. We're talking about Jacques Lacan. Yes, and, and I did the title it. Anne-Marie Smith, the, uh, the, the woman who taught me semiotics, was looking at the work because every once in a while we would get together and we were still friends and we'd have a little flame mm-hmm. because I was still single. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know what, and I'm like, I don't know what to call this. She goes, I have a perfect title for you. And she goes, being and having, and, and then she had me read Lacan and like, blah, 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 we talked about it. But that's how the title came about was Anne-Marie. Having a, fa- having a phallus, being ha- the man has a phallus, and a woman is being a phallus. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. So being and having, and it was perfect because it could fit in on all these different levels, too. Mm-hmm. Because we could be butch, we could own that identity, we could fake people out with our mustaches, which is what we were doing in L.A. at that time. Mm-hmm. Jerome Kaya, who I went to school with at San Francisco Art Institute, who I've also photographed in the portrait series, has the background. Mm-hmm. And he hosts all of the people at his opening from a bathtub drinking champagne. And I'm like in the front room, and it's like all of those portraits that I had made in San Francisco over a three years, summer period of time, as mm-hmm. well as the portraits in LA, mm-hmm. are shown together for the first time. And uh, talked about, written about. And then it followed with a solo show at Regan Projects of the Work. And uh, that's where I showed self-portrait cutting for the first time. And that, that seems to be a photograph that really gets a tremendous amount of attention. It's reproduced widely. Widely. I had always this fear by doing this body of work that I would never be able to get a full-time teaching job. When I started the portrait series, <laughs> I was like, well, this is it. Fuck it. It's too important to me. I have to make it. And I'm always telling students, listen... 
you actually need to not operate from a place of fear, mm -hmm. but you always have to operate as an artist from a place of what is important to you. Mm -hmm. And that's what you have to remember first and foremost. Self-portrait cutting became a signature work of Opie's early career. In it, Opie's back is turned to the camera as she faces an ornate emerald-colored studio backdrop. She's bare from the waist up. Orange tips decorate her close-cropped dark hair. Her upper back is a freckled canvas for a knife sketch scene of two stick figures in skirts who hold hands near a simple house under a cloud and two birds. Blood congeals with uneven emphasis along the freshly carved lines. Another key work from this series is Self-Portrait Pervert, which features Opie in SM gear with the word pervert carved across her chest. She unpacks the staggering reception of these photos in her interview with Hunter Drohoyoska Philp. I did that at a very young age without a lot of support around me of starting this body of work that came out of completely an emotional place of feeling that with the AIDS epidemic and the way that queers were being demonized, especially the leather community mm -hmm. being demonized in a certain way, that I utterly had to make these very formal, beautiful portraits of my friends. Mm -hmm. That history was going to go away. But this time period was so very precious. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to leave all the urban stuff on the back burner and do it. And spent from 1990, 91 to 95 making them. And then starting the freeways in 94 and 95. So here you are, still somewhat inexperienced. And yeah. the response was enormous in good and Huge. bad ways. How did that affect you as an artist to have so much critical response when you just weren't really used to it yet? It was scary. It was hard. It made me nervous, and I didn't really enjoy being completely defined as the young leather dyke photographer of my generation. Again, in the same way, identity is very fluid for me. So in the same way that I can be a camp counselor and a leather dyke mm -hmm. at the same time, like I didn't want to just be the poster child of the leather community at this time period. Mm -hmm. was perfectly happy to be making this work and that it was important and so well received. Mm -hmm. But the first place pervert ever showed was in the 1995 Whitney Biennial. And perverts were... Um I have pervert carved on my chest with needles and a leather mask on, and I make it in San Francisco, the third summer of the studio I rent. It's a very different piece than self-portrait cutting. Mm -hmm. It's a much bolder piece, much harder piece. Mm -hmm. I was getting extremely upset in relationship to how the leather community was being portrayed. We were coming off the heels of Helm, of Jesse Helms. We were coming off. We were just the beginning of the Clinton era. We were coming off of just extreme homophobia. And I felt like if my friend Stake tattooed Dyke on the back of her neck, mm -hmm. that I would have pervert carved on my chest. Mm -hmm. And I would become like the Holbein Henry VIII. You know, that I would be, be the warrior. I was going to be the pervert warrior out there for us. So I, I made it in relationship to um, just wanting to be unbelievably brave in relationship to my identity for the leather community and to make a, a portrait that was both utterly beautiful and tough at the same time. Never wanted it to be horrified. So many people were so scared of meeting me after that portrait. It was fascinating to me. And that's what really bothered me about it, is they had assumed my personality mm -hmm. from a picture. All of those assumptions were based 
upon like how I would be. Mm-hmm. So interviewers would come and interview me, and then afterwards they would be like, "You're so nice," mm-hmm. and I'd be like, "Well, why wouldn't I be mm-hmm. nice?" You know. And so that was a little unsettling. That was the hard stuff for me, and I think that's why I switched back to urban work immediately by doing the freeways, something quieter, something less personal, something that I knew, a territory that I have been involved in for a long time of looking that I could return to and be held in that quiet place because if I didn't do that, I felt that I was only going to be one-dimensional as an artist, and I wasn't interested in being a one-dimensional artist. We asked Anne Svetkovich about what it meant for Opie to use photography as a medium for queer women's history. So let's talk a bit about traditions of documentary photography with respect to something like lesbian visibility. So certainly with 70s lesbian feminism, there are a lot of photographers. The, the most probably famous one at this point would be Jeb, Joan Buren. But there are a lot of others like her who are not well known. If you go to the archives, you'll find all kinds of photographers who were just wanting to document the worlds around them of lesbians who they knew were not being documented by any kind of mainstream media. It's a way of saying our people are important. Now, in some cases, you could say that those photographs fall into the documentary tradition that might go back to Dorothea Lang et al. But there's also the tradition of the snapshot. And there is the tradition of the posed portrait, which is a way of dignifying your subjects. And what I would suggest is that what you see in these traditions of queer photography, whether they're made by people understanding themselves as artists or understanding themselves as journalists or documentarians, that I would argue mixes across all of those genres and that uses not just some And I think it's a bit of a myth that there's the unvarnished documentary photograph that's not somehow stylized or posed. So once you acknowledge that, it does make possible different kinds of studio photography, right? So Opie is really interesting because of the way in which I think she does take her incredible training, you know, and that is evident, for example, from your oral history where she's describing the teachers she worked with, cameras that she used her printing process, that she she brings incredible technical skill to the work of creating photographs then of her friends and, you know, people who exist in marginalized or subcultural or underground communities that get the same kind of treatment that you might find a famous person getting. And that, I think, is the sensibility of Lesbian Archive, is that everybody's important. Everyone deserves to have their portrait taken. How you do that might vary tremendously. And again, Opie is a special case, I think, of a photographer who brings great formal and technical skill and vision to the work of everyday archiving. While her prominent early work makes lesbian culture visible, Opie doesn't limit her subject matter or conceptual scope. In her oral history, she talks about being pigeonholed for the self-portraits, even though her practice has been hugely diverse. And she elaborates on how she sees documentary photography in dialogue with history. 
No, I don't, I don't think so. I think that so much is hinged around the earlier portraits of the self-portraits that people have an enormous amount of assumptions of my personality based on those self-portraits, which I think that definitely there's part of my personality that exists completely within those self-portraits or titled self-portraits. But at the same time, they were performing identity in a way that I felt that was really politically important. And so they're not necessarily like my inner personality of who I am as a person, but I think that a lot of assumptions are based on me because of me being out as being into SM and being part of the queer movement and all of that, that, you know, enormous amount of assumptions. I mean, have you ever read a review that didn't start off by quoting in the 1990s, these, you know, portraits are made. So, so much of everything I've made throughout my life pivots around that first kind of moment of visibility as an artist, which I'm glad I had that visibility. It's amazing, but it's also like I'm not one dimensional as an artist and nor I think that other conversations can be made. And I think that people don't work hard enough in a certain way to figure out those, the other kind of dialogues that can be made. Yeah, from, well, being and having 1990 to I stopped the portraits in 95 and I started the freeways in 94. And it was also because I was commuting to Irvine. So I was on that long commute and I was looking at freeways. I took five freeways to get to work. And so I was like very aware of them and wanted to photograph them in a way that created the way. I'm really interested in the idea of what is iconic. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by it. Mm -hmm. I think in the same way like my dad collecting the Lincoln Ferry types that are iconic in relationship to kind of a political record. What do we look at as in terms of record and how do we hold history? Mm -hmm. Same way that I might look at the hind picture of the girls in the mills that taught us everything about child labor laws and actually changed it. Mm -hmm. I've always been really interested in the possibility of photography creating a history and what that does in relationship to kind of ideas of representation mm -hmm. and uh, also how communities are formed. And so in my head, like history, history, history is always this thing. And But at the same time, documentary as a place of photography hadn't been pushed enough mm -hmm. on a conceptual level. Mm -hmm. So by using Holbein for the portraits of my friends, it created a different context for us to enter the work than just like photographs of the leather community in their bedrooms with their whips hanging around them, which would be utterly what we would think of as the document or a documentary mode of photographing mm -hmm. that community. Mm -hmm. So I'm always wanting to kind of recontextualize the notion of what is iconic by creating not only this utter kind of seduction of beauty of us entering the work, but then a way for us to recontextualize the way that we actually look at things. Mm. So we could actually look at a pierced and tattooed person at that time period in 1992 and find them utterly beautiful mm -hmm. because I contextualized it that way instead of them being like, whoa, dangerous and freaky and wrong, you know? Uh, we can look at a freeway and realize that our commute doesn't have to be so bad, that we can like enter this space and create a different kind of visual formula in it. And I think that that's something that I've always done with work that I'm kind of really interested in. Opie's photographs provide opportunities to reimagine our relationships with the world and bodies we inhabit. 
Anne Svetkovich, professor of women and gender studies at Carleton University, told us about how these dynamics reflect Opie's broader project. So one of the other really interesting things about Opie's work over time is the oscillation between photographs of people and photographs of places, perhaps, you know, most famously beginning with the Freeways series and then Minimal series in LA, but also including, for example, the, the ice houses and the surfers, for example. So surfers would be back to people, but it's also about water and space. For me, this is a brilliant approach to questions of documentation because one of the other conundrums of queer visibility and specifically lesbian visibility has been the sensationalizing or voyeuristic or spectacularizing representation of different communities. Some photographers have taken the strategy of no representation or we're not going to put people in the picture. And so I think Opie is one of those people who understands that you can document communities through documenting their spaces or documenting their stuff. And that if you want to understand L.A., for example, the freeways might be the best place to go and you don't need to have any people in those photographs for them to be represented. Another example of this from a queer context would be a photographer who's, I think of this generationally and insensibility quite close to Opie is Tammy Ray Carland, who actually is in one of the domestics portraits. And Carland has a series called Lesbian Beds, where lesbian lines are documented just through the interiority of the sheets, the books on the bed and other paraphernalia. So I think Opie shares that sensibility as well. I found it very interesting that in the, her description of her early years, she discusses her father and her grandfather having done work in interior design and construction, and that she always had a real interest in mid-century modern design, in textiles, in spaces. And so I think you can see that sensibility in her work that one way in which you can document people, again, is by documenting places. So that's where I think the landscape, as much as the portrait, is a tradition that she's engaging in. And to me, that work is profoundly queer across all of its iterations. So in some cases, a queer documentarian of the way people live does not necessarily mean that you have to represent people who are specifically identified as LGBTQ. Ice Houses and Surfers, the two series just mentioned, were location-specific projects that Opie undertook in the early 2000s. Shot from the edges of ice fishing clusters in Minnesota, the ice house photos lean between water, snow, ice, and blizzard as the vibrant shacks break up the horizon line and water cycle. For surfers, which came a bit later, Opie researched tidal patterns along the Pacific Coast Highway in California, and the series contains a mix of landscapes in which surfers await the waves and portraits of surfers back on the beach. Here's how Opie describes the relationship between the two bodies of work. It was a big change for me, as I didn't do that with ice houses. And I didn't do that because I was making skyways at the same time. But I realized while I was making surfers that I missed making portraits, and also friends were telling me, uh, okay, I'm confused by your work because you only make photographs of queer people. So are you trying to say that only queer people exist in the world? 
And I said, actually, I'm not. I'm not at all. And I had just been missing portraits. And so I decided that the surfers in a certain way were almost too pretty. They were too, they worked really well with the ice houses, but Sean already showed the ice houses. So I wasn't going to have my dream room like I had at the Guggenheim where they were across from each other. You know, and I needed to ground the work back into a language of documentary. Mm-hmm. So for me, making the portraits of the surfers was allowed me to bring it back down from just this kind of insanely beautiful them as objects. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I, it's great to think about them as objects, but I also needed to ground them a bit mm-hmm. in a language that I feel very identified with, which is, you know, a language of documentary. Anne Svetkovich told us about how emboldening it has been to watch artists like Opie find success and receive major accolades, including a Guggenheim Fellowship and the Archives of American Arts Medal in 2016. Well, it's definitely been so exciting to see her work in mainstream art institutions. You know, I was noting that she was in the 1995 Whitney Biennial. I remember seeing Nicole Eisenman's work in that biennial as well. And they were both artists whose work I was familiar with from other smaller gallery shows. But having them, you know, the Whitney Biennial is a big deal. And particularly to see artists who I identified as part of my world as queer and as lesbian reach that level of visibility themselves and visibility for their subjects was really important because it suggested, again, the possibility of worlds being bridged, right? Subcultural worlds and mainstream worlds, straight worlds and queer worlds, mainstream institutions and subcultural ones. But I see her as circulating within a world that is that is broader than just that. So for me, it's important that she also circulates in subcultural worlds that are familiar to me. But to see her portraits of, you know, friends in San Francisco, there's the portrait of Steakhouse with the dyke tattooed on the back. There's her own self-portraits, the two early ones, both the sketch of the figure drawing of women and the house on her back and then pervert on the front. There's a sort of pride there. And it's, it may be linked to questions of shame, too, the things that are considered shameful are proudly displayed and proudly displayed on the walls of mainstream institutions. For me, that felt, you know, a celebration for all of us. Like that is lesbian or queer visibility that is not just about the individuals in the picture, but a collective community being represented. And that took some doing, you know, that took some doing. So for me as a scholar student of that work. Uh, again, not trained as an art historian, but interestingly, like, what are the visual tools to do that? What is the nexus of professional training and art school training and subcultural living that will put that over? That's been something that a lot of us on the fringes, you know, we're watching all through the 80s and 90s, like, oh, 
Look at that Calvin Klein ad that looks like it's got quick content. Look at Dyke Action Machine taking the work of advertising and putting queer content into it, like trying to move back and forth between these worlds of high art, celebrity culture and subculture is something that I think a lot of us were doing in the 80s and 90s. And then the folks who break through in the way that Opie was able to do or Nicole Eisenman was able to do was, was really fascinating to watch. And while she's made work that speaks to a range of audiences, Opie is less concerned with one-size-fits-all approaches than she is with embracing particularity and equality. I don't, I don't think that I want, I, I'm not interested in like a universality, really. I think that myself, in terms of my own political beliefs, come up in the work from time to time. But I do believe in finding that other space that we all can enter it together despite our own internal beliefs. Like with the photographs in the early 90s, we'll go back to that. How do I end up making really, really poignant work about my community in which at that point there wasn't any of those examples on an aesthetic level to enter on? And I do believe those portraits created a platform for all of a sudden people to be like, wow, but why am I like holding up all of these opinions in relationship to my own ideas about same-sex relationships? And you had to enter it instead from this really formal place of beauty. So a lot of my like navigation is not like slamming my own politics down somebody's throat, but it's actually like using aesthetics in relationship to creating representations that we can all possibly enter it in different ways. Not trying to create a universal language, but I think that it's there's something really different between universality and equality. And I think I'm more interested in ideas of equality, that I want to be treated the same in a certain way. And so therefore, as an artist, I still want to have that equality happen within the work somehow. Anne Sebekovich told us how she sees the trajectory of Opie's work in the wake of queer culture finding its way into the mainstream in the 21st century. Looking back at those photographs now, too, in the wake of all that has happened in gender politics since the 90s and the pathway that's been cleared in part through projects like Opie's or the communities that she was part of in the 90s that have made different kinds of gender non-binary, gender non-normative trans identities possible. We see the way in which the play for the photographic image, whether it's wearing mustaches or wigs or showing your tattoos or showing your clothing, that there's so many different ways in which queers have played with portraiture. You know, we see it in the selfie, for example. And Opie belongs to those vernacular traditions. I don't think that diminishes the power of her work in any way, but just situates what she's doing as a fine art photographer in relation to a set of everyday and vernacular genres that people have used in order to create identities for themselves and styles of self-presentation. At stake in Opie's work is the capacity of images to transform our relationships internally and externally. In her 2012 oral history, she expresses the power of documentary photography and why she returns to it again and again in her work. Well, I think that community, again, is like something that we all are seeking. 
I think that we seek it in this very interesting way. And I think that we are literally, as a species, we're also pack animals to a certain extent. We like a pack. We like to have people around us. We want to have people around us that are thinking the same way, that have opinions. Humans want to share information. They want to share ideas. They want to inspire. They want to invent. You know, we're very very social species for the most part. You know, some people aren't. Some people are very introverted, but the extroverts are reaching out constantly, looking, thinking. You know, I mean, look at Apple Computer in a certain way of how they figured out how to engage a public. You know, they engaged a public through these incredible devices that they invented that changed our way of living. I mean, art is a little bit the same way and as well as creating dialogue. So really, my ideas around community is the idea of creating dialogue, you know, that it's not only about friends and having like a place that you can land, but on a larger level, it's about, you know, communicating to a certain extent. And communicating becomes part of community, that you are able to reach out and reach over those lines and create discourses. Is that why you think you go back over and over again to documentary photography. Yeah, I think so. I mean, documentary to me is the place that we hold history. And I think that from a place where I was taught and where I, you know, went through school and so forth that, and even from my childhood, my dad, in terms of his political campaign collection and things like that, that history has always been kind of the driving force in relationship to my own communication within work. And that documentary is the kind of easiest place to begin to create those dialogues by forming it around that. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu slash articulated. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman from the Archives of American Art. It was edited by the team at Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Quang and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble with Harlan Parker conducting. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving it a rating or sharing it with a friend or family member. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit our website, aaa.si.edu support. Thank you.